Church. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Well, hey, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick, one of the pastors here at The Transit. We're glad you're here with us this morning. Um, if you've been with us for the past couple months, particularly last week in general, you know that we finished a couple month-long sermon series going through First Peter, which was awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed preaching through that. Um, that was just uh, edifying to my soul. And so today what we're doing is we're doing a standalone sermon before we start our Advent series, November 29th. And with Thanksgiving around the corner, who here can take a wild guess about what I'm going to preach on this morning? Thankfulness! Boom! Exactly. Exactly. And so, to, uh, to start my time off, I kind of want to talk about this. Often, when we, when we think about and we talk about or read about thankfulness, we have a tendency to see thankfulness only as a discipline to be mastered, or like a habit to be cultivated in our lives, right? So we'll listen to a sermon, or maybe we'll feel convicted about how, how much complaining we were doing in 2020. So 2021 will roll around, and we're like, all right, every morning I'm going to do a gratitude list, okay? Nothing wrong with gratitude lists. I just have some beef with this kind of gratitude list that I'm about to explain to you, okay? Um, often our gratitude lists look like this. When we approach it, like, I need to be more thankful. I need to master the art of thankfulness. So let me go do this gratitude list. And the gratitude list looks like this. Uh, I, we start with I, am thankful for my coffee. Okay, anyone here thankful for coffee this morning? Praise the Lord for making the coffee bean. Hallelujah, right? I am thankful for my house. I am thankful for my spouse. I am thankful for gratitude lists that rhyme, right? And so with those gratitude lists, what we see is that our thankfulness is an isolated echo chamber and there's someone remarkably absent from that gratitude list. And his name is Jesus. And often when we approach thankfulness as just something to be cultivated and mastered because we want to feel better, we have to realize that biblically, thankfulness is, cannot, it cannot, it is, it's inextricably tied to the God of all grace and our relationship with him. That's what the biblical view of thankfulness. And when we approach thankfulness as just a discipline to be mastered, we divorce our thankfulness from God and the foundation of our gratitude is rooted in our circumstances rather than our Savior and what he's done for us. And biblically what we see is that thankfulness is to be an expression of adoration and thanksgiving and appreciation for who our God is and all the grace that he has undeservedly lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. And so what we're going to be looking at this morning is that thankfulness is not a discipline to be mastered as much as it is a person to be delighted in. Thankfulness in the scriptures is an invitation to worship, to worship our Savior. And today, we're going to be in Luke 7, 36 through 50, Luke 7, 36 through 50, and we're going to see a picture of what thankfulness looks like. And this is the, uh, the account of a sinful woman forgiven, and what I'm going to posit this morning is that thankfulness to God isn't necessarily something that is taught. I believe it's first and foremost the natural response to his saving grace, his redeeming love that can only come through Jesus Christ. You might be saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean thankfulness can't be taught? I'm not saying you can't whatever grow in that. But what I am saying is this, is that imagine someone, imagine, imagine you see someone who's drowning in a flood, Right? And the waters are still raging high. The, the person's been struggling 
for a long time and nothing they can do can save themselves and they know that unless somebody intervenes risking their own health and comes and rescue that rescues them they are going to drown and then imagine that person does comes and risks their own safety and somehow kind of miraculously saves that person doing for that person what that person could never do themselves and that rescuer comes and places that person's feet on dry ground when that moment happens of rescue i don't think you need to run up to the rescued person and give them seven highly effective tips on how to be more thankful to the person who just saved their life. You tracking with me? And so the title of my sermon is this, is Gratitude Flows from Grace. Gratitude flows from grace. The grace of God is the never-ending fountain of our thanksgiving. We're commanded in Scripture to give thanks always, to give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because His grace is never-ending. His grace is never-ceasing. Therefore, our praise unto Him shouldn't be ceased as well. And often, when that rescue happens, and the gratitude that simply pours out of a rescued heart, it, it's a messy gratitude, right? There's sobs, there's shaking, there's hugs, there's kisses, and this is exactly the kind of gratitude we see in our text today. And so, the, so this is my hope today. We're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into the text. My hope today is this, is that we would not leave here, it's Thanksgiving, and just try to be more thankful in our own strength. My hope is that we would not leave here striving to be more thankful, but that we would look to our precious Savior, our Rescuer, our Redeemer. We would reflect on and remember all that he's done for us. We'd reflect on where we, where we would be without his, with his, without his sovereign intervention in our lives. And as we do that, as we behold Jesus and what he's done for us, and we reflect on who he is and what he's done, that what would naturally well up in our hearts would be adoration and thanksgiving and gratitude for the undeserved grace that he has shown us. So let's pray, and we'll dive into Luke. Father, we thank you that your scriptures say you're the God of all grace. We're here today because of your grace. And we praise your name that we're here today we're here today with our sins forgiven. We're here today uh, with death having no, uh, no say over our lives, the devil having no say over our lives, sin having no dominion over our lives. We're here today inheriting your perfect peace and presence for all of eternity. We're here standing today in your love and in your grace. And that's all the work that you've lavished upon us. So God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Your faithfulness is great. Your grace is great. Your mercy is everlasting and it's new every morning. So we praise you. We praise you and thank you. And I, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would come. And for those of us who, you know, in our hearts, where our hearts have grown cold and um, distant from you and cold to the, what was once the warmth of, of rejoicing and, and your redeeming love, would you return to us our first love, our first passion that we had, Lord Jesus. And Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you have your way with your word and your people this morning? And I pray that Jesus would be magnified. He would increase in our hearts and in our lives and our souls and that I would decrease up here. And we pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to read, we've got like a long passage here. We're going to go kind of verse by verse. So uh, Luke 7, 36, if, if you have your Bibles, turn there, or it'll, the verses will be on the screen. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went, and Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. We're going to stop right there, okay? This is the scene. Jesus gets an invitation that very few people ever got, Okay? That's what's happening in verse 36. Jesus got an invite that very few people seldomly ever got. Why do I say that? Because Pharisees, what we know about Pharisees, they were extremely selective 
with who they chose to break bread with. They were, they were extremely selective with who they chose to break bread with. And so in a way, what we know historically about the Pharisees is they were kind of seen as the professional athletes of Judaism. They were kind of small in number, roughly 1% of the population, but everyone knew about them and looked up to them. They had tremendous influence religiously, culturally, and uh, politically in ancient Judaism. So the Pharisees were kind of seen as the experts and the elite of the faith. They had almost all of the Old Testament scriptures memorized, and they lived lives of like strict adherence to the law, and not just the law, but all these extra-biblical laws that they built like a fence around God's law so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking God's law, okay? And this is what one uh, New Testament commentator says. Since ritual purity was so important, the Pharisees refused to share table fellowship with those who ignored these matters. The, 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 if the Pharisees were the 1%, everyone else was the 99%, okay? And so the, the, the common people of the land were often shunned by the Pharisees and the Gentiles even more so. So all that to say, this is a really big deal uh, for a Pharisee to extend an invite to Jesus. And I think it's safe to, uh, to assume for us that this Pharisee saw Jesus Christ as indebted to him for the invite and not vice versa, right? Like, hey, Jesus, I don't know if you know who I am, who I roll with. We're kind of a big deal. You should be honored to come to my house tonight. You should be thanking me that I'm allowing you into my house to recline at table with me. And what we see later in this text is that um, this Pharisee actually wasn't the best of hosts, hosts right? When Jesus shows up, we, we learn that he didn't give any water to Jesus to wash his feet. He didn't greet him with a, a kiss of love. He didn't give any uh, oil to anoint uh, Jesus's head. And the reason I think this was the case is because the Pharisee, um, the Pharisee did none of this for the guest of honor since he saw himself as the host of honor. So much pride, right? So much hip hypocrisy and self-righteousness. So long story short, the scene that we're, that we're given in verse 36 is Jesus says yes to the invite. Jesus loves to feast with the, the, the religious self-righteous and also the sinners, right? Uh, well, self-righteousness is a sin as well. Anyways, but Jesus says yes, and he reclines at table. So the picture we get to kind of paint the picture of what this looks like is in the first century, reclining at table literally is reclining at table. There would be a table in the center of a room, a low standing table, and the way you would eat, they didn't have chairs, you would literally lay down on your side and eat with like your right hand as you all are, your head is facing the table and your feet are extended out from the table, kind of like uh, spokes on a wheel, if that makes sense. So that's the scene. And one commentator says too that it was most likely the case that the Pharisee left the door of his house open why? So that people who were interested to hear the conversation could get front row seats to the show, right? Hey, you can't come in my house, but if you want front row seats, the door's open, and, and you guys stay over there, don't come in, but you listen, you listen to, to me and Jesus talk, like take some notes, right? You stay out there, I'll leave the door open for some entertainment, but, uh, but yeah, dare not enter, but stay over there and take some notes. And so what we know in verse 36 is this, for the intents of this sermon, I believe, is that everything at this meal was hunky-dory, right? Jesus and this Pharisee were probably having a very non-emotional, orderly discussion about maybe religion and politics until verse 37, all right? And then verse 37, this is what we encounter. And behold, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner 
when she learned that Jesus was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So immediately here we're introduced to this dinner party crasher. Luke, the author of this gospel, doesn't hold back in his description of her. And what we learn from Luke is that this woman was a woman of the city and also described as a sinner. And scholars are fairly unanimous about what certain type of sin is being described here, okay? There's kids present, my kids present, so uh, this is, I, think we, I think we know what's being described here without me saying it. And so also what we know about this woman is that her sin and her lifestyle wasn't a secret, that her reputation had preceded her. She was clothed in shame and humiliation in the community around her, and she was known by and seen as her sin. And so this party crasher most likely probably had been living in years, if not decades, of sin and shame and humiliation and depression and bondage, shackles that she could not break free from. And I imagine, I imagine the text doesn't say this, but I imagine that there were probably multiple attempts, multiple, she probably had multiple attempts to deliver herself out of this lifestyle she was stuck in, but nothing worked. She didn't have the power to set herself free from her sin, from her shame, from the bondage of her sin. She was desperate. She was desperate and needed help and freedom. And by God's grace, by God's grace, word began to spread about Jesus to her. Word began to spread about Jesus. And the word that probably got to her ears even before this night was probably the words that Jesus spoke in Luke 4, okay? So three chapters before where we're at in Luke 7, Jesus is in Nazareth. He stands in the synagogue, and he opens the scroll to Isaiah, and he goes to Isaiah 61. And he reads Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. And this is what he reads in Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads this out loud in the synagogue. It says in Luke 4, he sits down. Everyone's watching him, and he goes, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled, and you're hearing of it. What is Jesus saying there? The prophet Isaiah and Isaiah 61, inspired through the Holy Spirit, saw the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah, Christ, the anointed one of God. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. Everything the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about and foretelling you're seeing, you're looking at the fulfillment of those prophecies. I am the Messiah. And guess what the Messiah has come to do? Proclaim good news of God's grace, to set at liberty those who are bound, to open up blind eyes. That's what I've come to do, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's who I am, and it's what I do. I am the Messiah. 
And I believe that word began to spread. And, and, and here's what I'm getting at. And what that means for our text is this. I think this lady believed that the Messiah had come. Now watch this. I believe she knew that the Messiah had come. And I believe that night, she believed that the Messiah had come for her. Because there's a difference there. There's a difference between believing the Messiah had come. The demons believe the Messiah came. He came. There's a difference between believing the Messiah had come and believing that the Messiah has come for you. To break off your shackles of sin. To forgive your sins. To set you free. To pour out the love of God in your heart, which was once a dead heart, to bring, breathe the resurrection life into your soul. The difference between believing the Messiah came. And she, on that night, she goes, he's come for me. He's come for the likes of me. The Messiah has come for the likes of me. And here's what I mean by that. She knew that she was shackled in sin and shame, but she also knew this, that the Messiah, Jesus, had promised liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound. She knew that her heart was broken, shattered through emotional trauma experience over the years, and the Messiah in Isaiah 61 and Jesus in Luke 4, the Messiah promised to bind up and heal the brokenhearted. And she knew that she was completely poor and destitute in spirit, but this Messiah promised to bring the great and glorious news of the riches of God's grace to those hopelessly indebted in their sins. So simply put, this lady, I believe, knew who she was. She knew who she was. But she also knew who her Messiah was and what he was capable of doing in her life. And there comes a night in her life where she hears, she hears that this Jesus has come close. That he's around the corner, essentially. We don't know where she lives, but he's close enough that she can, she can run there. She hears he's close, and, and, and my guess is she's going, wait, 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 my rescuer is here? My Messiah is here? My healer has come? And so what, what does she do? She runs. She runs. She runs. She grabs her precious, expensive ointment. She's probably already sobbing on the way to the house. She fights her way through the crowd, runs through the open door, and throws herself at the feet of not just the Messiah, but that night she throws herself at the feet of her Messiah, her Savior, her Liberator, her Rescue. And what does she do when she gets there? She sobs uncontrollably, tears of gratitude and thanksgiving that her salvation has come. Sobbing, weeping, it says in the text. And I imagine this wasn't a pretty sight. Like, I imagine this was violent. This was buckling over. This was tears flowing out of her. She's buckled over. She's drenching Jesus' feet with her tears. And the ointment washes his feet with her hair and is clinging to and kissing the feet of her precious Savior, knowing, I believe, that it was, that it was these soon-to-be nail-scarred feet that would usher in her redemption and her salvation. And so the question then is not, why would she be crying like this and showing all this emotion? The question is, how could she not be? How could she not be? When we, under, when we understand the sheer magnitude of what we've been saved from and what Jesus has saved us to, the natural response looks like this. When we understand, when God opens blind eyes and unveils to us the depravity, the depths of our sin, and yet the far greater depths of God's mercy for us, shown in Christ Jesus to us, it, it, this is what that looks like. She understood exactly who she was, exactly what she deserved, exactly how powerless she was to overcome her bondage to sin by herself. 
And she knew in part, I believe, who this Jesus was and took it in faith that he was able to do what he promised to do. And in this beautiful act of faith, she threw herself at the feet of her merciful Savior, trusting that he alone could rescue her out of the prison that she was in. And, and, and for the sake of illustration, it's like she's coming covered in heavy chains. Rusty, oppressive, slowing her down, kind of ripping into her skin kind of chains that she's been carrying for years. And she comes with that and she throws herself in those chains at the feet of Jesus and says, you alone hold the keys to unlock these chains and break these chains off of me. And what does Jesus do? He does that in her life. He does that. That's why she's crying. She knew that tonight her rescuer had come, her deliverance had come because Jesus had come. And that night he came for her. Verse 39. Now in the Pharisee, don't you love how the Pharisees respond to like a beautiful moment? Um, now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he starts thinking to himself. And he goes, if this man were actually a prophet, he would have known who and what. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. What I want to hone in on right here is this. It's important for us to remember, church, that these are the thoughts of the Pharisee towards the woman. These are not the thoughts of Jesus towards the woman. Why do I say that? Because often in our sin, in our shame, we think Jesus looks at us and thinks the thoughts of the Pharisee in Luke 7.39. We think Jesus sees us and sees our sin and sees our past, and he goes, I'm disgusted with you. You wretch, get those filthy hands off of me. And what we learn, what we see in our text, is something so beautiful is that Jesus doesn't shun the sinner. He doesn't spurn the sexually immoral. Jesus invites the sinner close. He invites the sinner close because when the sinner comes close and reaches out in faith to Jesus for forgiveness and redemption and a new life, Jesus gives it to them. Jesus gives it to them. Where there's sin, Jesus offers forgiveness. Where there's wounds, Jesus offers healing. Where there's chains, Jesus offers freedom. And where there's death, Jesus offers life, everlasting. This is the work the Messiah came to do. And if, watch this, if Jesus had shunned this woman because of, because of who she was and all that she did, if Jesus would have shunned this woman, he'd be forfeiting everything that he was sent to do, right? He'd be forfeiting everything he sent was sent to do. And what we learn is that, listen, I think it's important for us to remember that it's not just what Jesus does, it's what he loves to do. It's what he loves to do. Do we realize that Jesus loves to forgive the sinner? Do we love that Jesus loves to heal wounded and shattered hearts? Do we, lo do we know this? That Jesus loves to break off chains of sin and shame and oppression it's the work he came to do, and, and, and may we have the faith to believe and know that, church, it is the work he still does. It is the work he still does and the work that he is still doing. And so if you're here today and you're stuck in sin and shame and condemnation, you've been fighting but to no avail, there's great news for you today in this text. And, 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 what, and what Scripture says is that there's a Messiah who has come for you. 
who has come for you. He alone has cleansing in his blood to, to wash away all your sins. He alone has resurrection life to pour into your heart. He alone can lift the chains and the shackles that you've been walking in for far too long. It's what he does in his word, and it's what he still does. He still does. He still does. Amen? Verse 40, And Jesus answering said to him, Remember, the Pharisee here is just thinking. And we have to be careful in the gospel. It's always hilarious when people think around Jesus. It's kind of dangerous because Jesus can read your mail. And Jesus answered the thoughts of the Pharisees, the Pharisee Simon, and he talks to Simon. He goes, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. So Jesus goes and he starts sharing a story. And in this, show, this story, we see, that there, we see that there's, excuse me, there's two guys in debt to a moneylender. And one of them owes about two years' wages, and the other owes roughly two months' wages. And the money lender, listen, the money lender in the story doesn't demand they pay it back. Say, this two-year debt is crippling over you. You're going to work overtime for me to pay back what you owe me. That's not what the money lender does. The money lender does the unthinkable, and he shows those who are indebted to him undeserved grace, canceling the record of debt. And then Jesus asked this crucial question. Jesus doesn't ask this. He doesn't ask Simon the Pharisees, which one will be more happy than the other? That's not what he says. He says, which one will love and appreciate and cherish and adore the moneylender more? Which one will love the person that canceled the debt more? That's the question that's asked. And the obvious answer is the one who knows the sheer magnitude of the debt that was forgiven and the magnitude of the grace that was shown to them, the love that was shown to them in that forgiveness of their debt. And verse 44, Jesus continues. And then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And what Jesus does here is he simply compares and contrasts the external actions of Simon, the Pharisee, and the sinful woman. And he goes, Simon, I'm going to shoot straight with you. When I showed up, I just got to shoot straight. You showed no signs of adoration or affection for me. My, my feet, there's no water given for my feet. There was no kiss of, of warmth and affection for me. There was no oil provided for my head. But this woman of ill repute, this woman of the city, this sinful woman, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet, to clean them with her tears, and wash them with her hair. And the reason for this, this is where Jesus traces traces the issue to you. The reason for this is simple, is that one of you knew the true weight of the debt that you were under, and therefore knew the true freedom that comes when that debt is forgiven. And so what we learn here is that thanksgiving is not just some external exercise. Thanksgiving is an issue of the heart. 
and thanksgiving naturally overflows and pours out of a heart that has been radically forgiven and radically set free. Thanksgiving flows out of a heart that has been shown undeserved grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. And then verse 48 through 50. And Jesus said to the woman, Jesus looks at the woman. And who knows, who knows, you know, what Jesus is going to say as he looks at her. And the woman probably doesn't know what she's going to say, but she's going to hear some words that she has never heard in her entire life. She's going to hear some words she has never heard in her entire life. And this is what Jesus says. Your sins are forgiven. In verse 49, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sin? See, the Israelites knew that sin was trespass against God. And if sin is a trespass against God, then only God can forgive trespasses because that's where the offense lies. That's where the debt lies. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus looks at the woman and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And a simple summary of what I would say is happening in these last couple verses is that the Messiah, Jesus, accomplished for this woman everything he promised to do. The Messiah accomplished for this woman everything he promised to do and everything he was sent to do. He did in this woman's life. And the woman came essentially with two things. It's pretty simple. She came with a lot of things, but she came with two things essentially. And the first thing was this. She came with her sin. She came with her sin. She didn't let her sin keep her distant from Jesus. She ran to Jesus with her sin. She knew that her biggest need was forgiveness, was cleansing, was washing, was deliverance from her sins and deliverance from her life of sin. So she does the unthinkable and she carries the filth of her heart and the mess of her life and throws all of that at the feet of Jesus. The same feet that would take that filth from her and march hands full with her sins, march towards the cross and nail that sin, that debt of sin, to the cross, forever forgiven and forever paid with the sacrifice that he was going to do. She threw it at his feet that were soon to be nail-scarred because it was those feet that was going to take her filth and her sin to the cross. She was going to pay those, he was going to pay her sins. It's going to be charged to his account. And so she carries that filth, that sin to Jesus. She doesn't let her sin uh, 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 keep her distant from Jesus, but it's her sin that, that throws her at the feet of Jesus. So she brings her sin, but she also brings her faith. Jesus says, her, your faith has saved you. Well, what was her faith? Her faith was trust in the great physician who came not to call the righteous but to call sinners. That's who her faith was in. He says in Mark 2, it's not the, not the healthy that need a doctor, the sick. I haven't come. I haven't come to call the righteous. I, I, I'm in the business of setting sinners free. I'm in the, the business of, of breathing new life into those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And so she comes with her faith her trust in this Messiah, that the cleansing of her sins, the forgiveness of uh, uh, her sins, the breaking of her chains could only, only come through faith in Jesus and his work on her behalf, not her works. And so therefore she came to Jesus bound, and the beautiful thing we see here is that she left Jesus fully forgiven and radically set free. 
fully forgiven and radically set free. And then Jesus says to her, and I imagine with a big smile on his face, and maybe even tears welling up in Jesus' eyes, go in peace. Go in peace. Meaning for the rest of your life, for all of eternity, from this moment forward, you'll be enjoying the abundant, everlasting life and joy and peace that flows from my heart to yours. Amen? And so to conclude, the text ends. And I imagine that the woman returns home. She returns to maybe what is probably um, a dingy apartment, dingy, dirty apartment. Maybe she's hungry and she opens the pantry for some food and the pantry was just as empty as it was when she left to go see Jesus. She returns back to her community and her reputation for the time being is still the same as it was before. And with a smile on her face, tears running down her chin, she gives thanks. Her circumstances didn't change that night. Her heart did. And so she gives thanks. She gives thanks. And maybe this is what it looked like for her. Jesus, my apartment's a mess, but my sinful heart has been cleansed. Jesus, my pantry is empty, but the riches of God's love has been poured into my heart. My reputation in the community is marred, but my standing with God is perfect peace forever. I have been redeemed. I have been rescued. I have been reconciled for all of eternity. Nothing from that moment forward can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why would I not give thanks in all circumstances? In every circumstance, that's an opportunity, opportunity for me as a forgiven of God to praise God, not for my circumstances, but to praise the fact that he's still Lord. He is still faithful. He's still a God of love in whatever circumstance I find myself in. And so I hope we have eyes to see how gratitude flows, not out of good circumstances, not out of health, not out of wealth, not out of a nation united. It flows out of redeemed hearts and rescued hearts. That's what it flows out of. And so in 2020, with, with, um, when, we, when, we, when we camp and root our thankfulness in the circumstances that are around us in 2020, all of a sudden, we lose our affection, we lose our doubt, we fix our eyes on all the things that are going wrong, and we are so quick to forget. Our problem isn't necessarily gratitude and thankfulness. Our problem as the people of God is that we've forgotten. We've shifted our focus to our circumstances, and we've forgotten that we need to fix our gaze on Jesus. And when we encounter his redeeming love, through the power of his spirit, he reminds us. He pulls up the blinders of our eyes and reminds us of where we would be where we would be apart from his redeeming love. I think our circumstances won't rock us so much. I think our circumstances won't shake us so much. And so leaving here today, I think it would be good for us to reflect on the magnitude of what Jesus has saved us from. The magnitude of what he saved us from. And also to reflect on and to remind ourselves of the glory, the eternal glory of what he saved us to. He is worthy in all circumstances for all of eternity to be praised and to be thanked. So uh, that concludes my sermon. I want to give you guys a minute to just cry out to Jesus for where your hearts have grown cold 
and maybe we've forgotten just through the busyness of life. Um, there's no condemnation. Thankfulness is an invitation to connect with the living Savior who loves to hear from his people. He loves to hear from his people. He loves it. He loves it when we come to him just as we are. He loves it when we come to him with our lack and maybe we don't have gratitude in our hearts. Ask him to fill you again with fresh gratitude, a fresh reminder of his love for you and what he's done for you through his death and his resurrection. So let's take a moment to thank him right where we're sitting in our hearts and I'll close this with prayer. your word says in Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and beholding your glory because your steadfast love is better than anything in this life. Your steadfast love is better than life. So therefore my lips will praise you. And I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Heavenly Father, we come before you so grateful for your love that you have lavished upon us. Thank you, God, that we rest securely under the shadow of your wings. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we, we bless your name. We say thank you for going to the cross on our behalf. Thank you for going to the cross and carrying our sin there. Thank you for canceling our record of, of debt and sin. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and help us to realize that your work on the cross, it is finished for the believer. It is finished. Our sins have been cleansed. Our sins have been washed white as snow. Our debt has been forgiven. And you poured your spirit into our hearts. You poured new resurrection life into our hearts today. And so, Holy Spirit, where hearts have grown cold, where we've been busy and distracted, burden and heavy laden, I just pray, Jesus, that you would come and lift those off of your people. And we just ask, Jesus, that you would do what you promised to do in your word, to set at liberty those who are in cap captivity, Lord God. And so there's anyone here today who is, who, is, who is struggling with sin and struggling with the bondage of an addiction or something that they can't break, I just pray, Jesus, that today would be the first step in their journey with you, where they come to you finally. They stop striving in their own strength, but they throw themselves at your feet, Lord Jesus, with their chains, that you would set them free today, Lord God. 
And for those here today that have never experienced your goodness and your faithfulness and your kindness, Lord God, would they answer the call, would they answer the invitation that you're extending them today to come to you with just who they are, everything that they are. And I speak against any lies that that, 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 that person or those people watching me on the live stream would believe lies about you, that you, you hate them, or you're a God who doesn't, doesn't, doesn't want to fellowship with them when they see you. Holy Spirit, would you give them eyes to see Jesus for how truly uh, beautiful he is and how much grace and compassion is in his eyes, Lord Jesus. Will we answer yes in our pursuit of thankfulness? Will we answer yes to the invitation to abide with you, Jesus, and to thank you for who you are and what you've done for us? Because you're worthy. You're worthy of all praise and honor that we can give you. So thank you. Thank you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, y'all can.